Our Bible reading today comes from Genesis chapter 32. Um, you can see it on the screen. There are also Bibles on the pews, uh, on the chairs, actually, not pews any longer. Genesis 32, 22 to 32. And in this Bible passage, um, Jacob has just learned that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a little uh, boy, about Peter's age, in grade four or five, my friends and I would often go to the local playground. Uh, when we were there, we would draw a circle and two of us would get into the circle, stomp our feet, clap our hands and start sumo wrestling. Uh, and as we tried to push and shove each other out of the ring or try and grab each other and trip each other over, uh, it was a lot of silly fun um, and it was an amazing time. Uh, in case you're wondering, we didn't strip down to our underwear. Uh, we were just scrawny little kids, fully clothed, trying to wrestle each other. Now in today's passage, we see uh, Jacob wrestle a man. Uh, but it's not a game, uh, but an unexpected encounter with God. It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, but it comes with a raft of questions, doesn't it? Uh, what does a, what, what, what does, why does a man come out of the blue uh, to wrestle and tackle Jacob in the middle of the night? Is it really God? Uh, because the fight seems to be fairly evenly matched. Uh, so how does it make sense? Is it really God wrestling a man? Well, like any tricky uh, passage in the Bible, the best, best way to understand it uh, is to approach it through its context through the story so far, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Now, one of the themes that we've seen in Jacob's life is that God keeps taking the initiative over and over again. Uh, God took the initiative to choose Jacob. Even before he was born, before he could do anything good or bad, God chose Jacob and not Esau uh, to be the bearer of the promises of God, so that through him, a child of Eve, a child of the promise will be born who will reverse the curse of death and sin. And even though Jacob grows up to, uh, 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 living up to his name, he, as a heel grab, as a deceiver, as a schemer, and as a cheater, God takes the initiative again. So when he's on the run, fleeing for his life after stealing his brother's blessings, God appears to Jacob in a dream in Bethel. He reaches out to Jacob and makes unconditional promises to Jacob. 
So the promises to Abraham, his grandfather, and his father Isaac are now given to him, made to Jacob, the blessings of Lob. And you might remember it, land, offspring, and blessings. But more than that, God promises that he'll be with Jacob and that he'll bring Jacob back to the promised land. And the amazing thing we saw last week was that when Jacob was living in exile in Haran, far away from the Holy Land, God took the initiative again. God blessed Jacob with 11 sons and a daughter, fulfilling his blessing of offspring. God then blessed Jacob with immense wealth, so much so that even when Laban tried to change Jacob's wage 10 times, Jacob became filthy rich. His cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, probably numbered in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. He even had men servants and maidservants. Basically, he had an army at his disposal. And so by the time Jacob leaves Padan Haram for the promised land, he was already a small nation, thus fulfilling God's blessing of the promise of blessings. And so after 20 years, when it was time for Jacob to return to the promised land, God tells, his, uh, God tells Jacob, gather your family, pack your bags, you're going home. You see, throughout Jacob's life, God takes the initiative. God directs his affairs in choosing him, in making promises to him, in blessing him with children and riches, in fulfilling his promise over and over again. And so when we get to today's passage in chapter, 20, 30, uh, in chapter 32, it begins with Jacob on his way to the promised land. But he must be wondering, what's God's game plan? Esau wanted to kill me 20 years ago. Does Esau still want to kill me now? Or has he forgiven me? What's going on? Well, we get a hint of what Jacob could expect in verse 1 of chapter 32. Verse 1, have your Bibles open, please, and, and follow along. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. So Jacob comes across a camp on his way home. And it's not any ordinary camp, but probably a military camp. And the camp is filled not with people, but with angels. And not one or two angels, but probably thousands, thousands of angels. Because it's a camp, a camp of God. And it's an ominous sign, isn't it? On the one hand, it's a sign of God's protection, of God's promise. But on the other hand, it's also an ominous sign that a potential battle is at hand. And so Jacob sends a messenger to Esau in verse 3 to suss out the situation. And when the messenger returns in verse 6, listen to what, Jacob's, uh, what, what he tells Jacob. We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob's worst fears are realized. He's filled with fear and distress in verse 7 because Esau has clearly not forgotten nor forgiven. Esau's coming and he's not coming alone. He's coming with his lynch mob of 400 men. And I'm pretty sure they're not coming to have a cup of tea with Jacob. They're coming with a sword. And so Jacob must be wondering, God, God, what's going on? God, why are you sending me home? Why are you, why are you sending me to my death? Esau's going to kill me and make a mockery of all your promises. Now, have you ever felt that way where where God's promise and the realities of life doesn't seem to match up. Well, that's how Jacob's feeling. He doesn't know how God's going to keep his promise, how God's promise will be fulfilled for him to be able to live in the promised land. 
His experience is at odds with the promises of God. And so what does Jacob do? Well, he does two things. He devises a plan and he prays. Uh, but first, before we get there, well, we need to recognize that Jacob, what Jacob doesn't do. Remember, Jacob's basically a small country on his own right. He's got thousands and thousands of animals, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of men servants and maid servants. He's got an army at his disposal. So you might remember Genesis 14 when Lot was captured. Abraham went to rescue his nephew and he sent his army to rescue Lot. Jacob's in the same situation where he has the power and the resources to raise up an army from amongst his own people. So he could go and kill Esau. He could bring in assassins and take him out by night. But he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does first is verse 7. He devises a strategy. He executes a plan. He divides his people and animals into two groups. And we're told why in verse 8. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Now, some people see this negatively. As though Jacob is demonstrating here that he doesn't trust in God or his promises or that God will protect him and keep him safe. After all, he's a deceiver and a schemer. He's a heel grabber. He's always up to no good, isn't he? But if you're an investor, you'd say that Jacob's diversifying. If you were a military commander, you'd be saying, well, he's being strategic. You see, there's logic to what Jacob's doing. So I don't think he's, not, he's demonstrating distrust in God here because the very next thing he does is demonstrate trust in God. He prays a prayer of faith. He asks God to keep his promises because he's come to believe in the promises of God. So verse 9, Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. And notice in verse 10, his posture. He's no longer the self-sufficient heel grabber. He's now the unworthy servant of God. Verse 10, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I'd only two... I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. But Jacob hasn't just become a firm believer in the promises of God. He has become a firm believer in the power of God because he now asks God to save him. Verse 11, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Now, this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob in the Bible. And it's a significant one, isn't it? It shows that Jacob's returning to the promised land a changed man. It might have taken God 20 years to make Jacob less of a scoundrel and more of a saint, to make Jacob genuinely believe in the promises of God. But he still isn't perfect, is he? He's a bit like us. He's a mixed bag. Because what he does next shows that the old Jacob, the self-serving Jacob, the self-preserving Jacob, is still very much alive. Now, there are two things that he does. The first is that he tries to bribe Esau. And so from verse 14, he takes 220 goats and 220 sheep in verse 14. He takes 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 30 donkeys in verse 15. He then splits them up into five groups and tells his servants to go on ahead, group by group, and, and give it to Esau. 
as a gift. And we're told uh, why he did this in verse 20. He thought, I will pacify Esau. I'll pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Now, this might seem like a very clever thing to do. After all, Jacob uh, bought Esau's birthright with a bowl of lentil stew, which was a bargain. Uh, he, he stole Esau's blessings and the inheritance of the firstborn with deception, which was terrible. And so maybe all these gifts will make it up to Esau. Well, one commentator says that the 550 animals and their calves that Jacob is offering Esau here is a sort of gift worthy of a king. I mean, here you have, uh, have, you ever, have you ever seen 550 animals in all these varieties on the same field? I haven't, but from my calculations, if you line them all up in a straight row, it will extend over one kilometer long. That's a lot of animals. That's a huge gift. But it's not his bribe that's disturbing. It's the two things he does. It's the second thing he does, sorry. And that's to send everyone, including his family, on ahead in verse 22. And so if Esau wants to kill Jacob, Esau's going to have to reject bribe after bribe after bribe. If Esau wants to kill Jacob, he's going to have to walk past and possibly kill his wives and children and men servants and maidservants before he would get to Jacob to kill him. Everything in these chapters points to Jacob's struggle between the promises of God and the realities of life. He wants to trust God, as we can see in his prayer, but he's petrified of his vengeful brother, as we can see what he does. He wants to obey God, but he's terrified of facing the consequences of his own sins. And so how are we to understand this? When the prospect of death seems to be completely at odds with the promises of God. Because we often find ourselves in these sorts of situations as well, don't we? And so when we've committed some horrible sin and feel that God will never forgive us, we might feel like all hope is lost and continue and feel like that there's no option but to keep living in sin because we can't see forgiveness, we can't see restoration, we can't see reconciliation. But if we remember and believe God's word and God's promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for example, then we will repent of our sins and know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when we're facing death and sick in our hospital bed and feel that all hope is lost and we uh, can only hopelessly wallow in our sorrow. We can do that or we can remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 11 and cling on to the hope of the resurrection. For Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You see, friends, that's what Jacob needs. He needs to be reminded of the promises of God again and again and again, that God will be true to his promise, that God will come through with his promise. And so even though if the world appears to be falling apart right before your eyes and you can't see a way out, you have your brother coming to kill you with 400 men and you, there's no escape clause, there's no reset button, you can still trust in God. And that's what Jacob must do now. 
And so, friends, if, if there's something you're struggling with now, in, with the realities of your own life, and you feel that the realities of your life doesn't match the promises of God, and you're struggling, well, let me encourage you to press on, to remember God's promises. Maybe that means reading Mark's gospel again. For in Mark's gospel, you be reminded of who Jesus is and what he came to do for you. That there is hope in this life. That there is grace in your life. Or maybe you need to talk to someone, someone you trust, someone who you know will shower you with God's love and grace and not condemnation and judgment that you fear. For God has given us each other to encourage each other, to spur each other on, so that we might cling on to the hope that we have in Christ. So let me encourage you to do that, if that's where you are this morning. Well, out of the blue, when Jacob's now all alone, hiding behind his family, hiding behind his children, hiding behind his men servants and maidservants and all the gifts that he wants to give to Esau, he's hiding. And he's all alone on the other side of the promised land. They've all crossed the Jabbok River. They're in the promised land. But Jacob is staying behind. He doesn't want to cross the, the, the Jabbok River. He doesn't want to get into, go into the promised land. He doesn't want to face Esau. He's scared and he's terrified and he's wrestling with, with, with the promise of God and the realities of life. And it is in this context, in this moment, that he's tackled in the middle of the night by a man, by a stranger. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So, so, so who is this man? Now, if I was Jacob, and it's pitch black, and you can't see, and a man jumps you, I'd think that it would be Esau, right? Esau's coming to kill you, I think it'd be Esau. And one of the first things I'd do is touch his hand. Oh, it's not hairy. Um, it's not Esau. Then I would think the most, most next logical uh, person would be one of his henchmen. He's got 400 of them. He might have spread them out to look for me. He might have uh, uh, avoided the bribes, passed my family, sneaked over the river. I would think that it would be Esau's henchman. He's trying to kill me. He's wrestling me unprovoked. And so that's why they're, they're, they're wrestling all through the night because Jacob is fighting for his life. He thinks that he's going to be killed by Esau's henchman. But by the end of the story, Jacob knows and we're told that he's not wrestling a man, let alone a henchman. But he was wrestling God himself, verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And so how, how does Jacob come to that conclusion? How does Jacob know that the man he wrestled was not a man but God? Well, there are two clues. The first is in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, that is, the man couldn't overpower Jacob in the wrestling match, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and as he wrestled with the man. Now, the other day I woke up. It was a school day and Kylie was getting the um, uh, lunch boxes ready and making the kids' sandwiches and the kids were getting themselves ready. And I, and I got up, I walked up to Kylie and I touched her hip. And I asked her, is your leg still okay? And she just gave me a strange look. Yeah. 
And so I thought, well, why don't I go and see if the kids are all right? So I went around and touched each kid's hip, and they gave me a weird look. Bob, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just seeing. Like, after I touch your hip, is your leg okay? And they're like, yeah. Anyway, I'm not as strange as I might appear. And the point is that nothing happened to their legs. They're still walking around fine. You see, the man, did you notice, didn't yank and pull and punch and, and, and try to rip Jacob's leg off. He merely touched. And at that instance, in that instance, Jacob must have felt the power of this man immediately. For the power of this man was not a, the power of a man. It was the power of God. Because that is only something that God can do, not a man. But, but if this man is God, then how did Jacob manage to overpower him? How, how is that logical? Now, the, the other day, I don't know whether you have this at home, but I have a designated spot on the sofa. That's our sofa, and that's Baba's throne, my throne. That's my seat. Now, I've got a designated um, spot. My family doesn't think I've got a designated spot. They don't think that's my throne. That's my spot, and no one else is allowed to sit there. But I know that I do, because as it says, Baba's throne. Now, the other day, I went to my sofa, I wanted to sit down. But what I found was that Evie was in my spot. And so I gave her what she deserves for breaking the unbreakable law in our family. I sat on her. And then I wrestled her, and I reclaimed my throne. Now, if you examine Evie after the service, you'll notice that she is bruised and scarred and has every bone in her broken. Well, that's not quite true, isn't it? I've just broken her arm. Because as her father, I was playing with her. And so I didn't use all my power. I held back my power and my weight when I sat on her. In some sense, I humbled myself. I lowered myself so that I'm at her level, that I won't match her strength and sometimes I humble myself so much that the kids would even overpower me so on Saturday mornings I often try to sleep in only to find myself with four kids on top of me and what's happening here is that God has humbled himself God has matched his power to the power of Jacob and a little less than that so much so that the man Jacob the shepherd boy, as it were, would be able to now even overpower God himself. Isn't that phenomenal? That God would humble himself so that he might be overpowered by a creature that he created. That's the first reason why we know that this is God. The second reason we know that this man is God is because when it was approaching daybreak in verse 26, the man makes it clear that he has to leave because he can't show his face. And we know that he can't show his face because in verse 30, Jacob says, I've seen God's face and I've lived because he's only seen God's face at night. But if he saw God's face when day broke, he would have died. For you can't see God's face and live. But even at the risk of losing his life, do you notice what Jacob does? He refuses to let go. Why? Because he's just witnessed 
the physical manifestation of the power of God. With a simple touch, his legs dislocated, and despite the intense and overwhelming pain he's in, he hangs on for dear life and says to God, to this man in verse 26, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, Jacob would rather die seeing God's face than die when he sees Esau's face. That's his option. Die seeing God's face or die seeing Esau's face. And he chooses to die seeing God's face. You see, we're not told what Jacob's really asking for. What, what's this blessing that he's asking? What's he, what's he demanding? Well, the context tells us, doesn't it? What is it that Jacob wants most right now? What is it that Jacob fears most right now? He's got the promise of offspring. It's been partially fulfilled. He's got the promise of blessings. It's partially fulfilled. And so the blessing, the promise that he still doesn't have is for him to return home safely in the promised land. What he fears most is the man who can stop that from happening. So in short, Jacob is asking God, let me live in the promised land. Let me live in the promised land. And so he begs God to bless him, and God does. God changes Jacob's name to Israel in verse 28 and blesses Jacob in verse 29. You see, friends, Jacob the heel grabber struggled his whole life. He struggled with his brother, for his birthright. He struggled with his father for the blessing of the firstborn. He struggled with his father-in-law for his wives and wages. And now he struggled with God and has overcome. And so now he's Israel, which literally translates God strives or, or God fights. Jacob has striven all his life and has overcome, but now God will strive for him. Jacob has deceived to steal the blessings of God but Israel will be blessed by God because he asked. And so what's the point of this wrestling match? A lot of people say that it's about prayer. Jacob wanted to be alone to pray. He needed some DNM time with God. And so the application is, you need to spend time with God. You need to find your Jabbok. You need to have this experience and wrestle with God in prayer so that God will give you what you want. Have you heard that application before from this passage? Well, once we've understood the context, we know that that's not the application, is it? That that's not the moral of the story, that that's not the point of Jacob's wrestling match with God. Because Jacob wasn't alone because he needed alone time. He was alone with God because he was hiding behind his family. He was scared that Esau was going to kill him. That's why he was alone. Yet despite all of Jacob's failings, God took the initiative again. God appeared to Jacob. God wrestled, wrestled Jacob. God made Jacob limp. God changed Jacob's name. God, God, God blessed Jacob. God was in control of the whole situation that Jacob might believe and trust in him. You see, Jacob doesn't need to scheme and deceive to get what God can give. All he had to do was trust God will keep his promises even if Jacob doesn't know how. And after this wrestling match, Jacob does. Because instead of hiding behind his family, he limps in pain right to the front of the pack in chapter 33, verse 3. 
He's not afraid. He's not hiding anymore. He goes straight to the front and looks at death in the face. And how does, uh, and how does Esau respond? Well, chapter 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. The strained brothers were now reconciled twins. God had made the impossible possible. Jacob tore his family apart, but God has brought his family back together. Jacob will live in the promised land and not die because God has saved him from death. But what it took for it to happen was for God to take the initiative, for God to humble himself in the form of a man, even to the point of letting a man like Jacob overpower him. And it will be through such a struggle that Jacob will trust in the promises and power of God and confront death in the face. Does that remind you of someone? For God has taken the initiative and sent Jesus, his one and only son, in the form of a man who humbled himself even to the point of letting wicked men overcome him and crucify him to death on a cross. But it will be through the cross that God restores our relationship with him, that we can face death and live, not in the promised land, but in the new creation. And so, friends, when the realities of life don't match the promises of God, look to the cross of Christ. For we'll remind you that Jesus isn't on the cross for Jesus is risen and he will come again to bring us home. Amen.